This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and also YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. I want to thank those who have been contributing to keep us on the air and uh, making our archives free and available to everyone. And uh, if you want to continue doing that, go to our website, spiritmatterstalk.com, and it will tell you to do. We are thrilled today, honored to have as our guest, Tenzin Darshi. He is president and CEO of the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transform Transformative Values at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was born a Hindu. Uh, he entered a Buddhist monastery of his own volition at the age of 10 and uh, is uh, on numerous boards and having a tremendous influence. He was the first Buddhist uh, chaplain at uh, MIT. And uh, we're, as I said, thrilled and excited to have you on today. Thank you so very much for taking the time. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Tenzin, you have one of the more interesting biographies. Um, we always like our listeners to get a sense of uh, the spiritual journey of our guests. Um, maybe you can briefly uh, tell us how you, uh, you were, uh, from what I read, uh, raised in Bihar in the east part of India and um, ended up a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Tell us how that came about. Um, I, I think uh, mostly serendipitously and in a very uh, non-rational manner. Um, I was uh, living with my parents uh, near Calcutta. Uh, and uh, around the age of six, I started having some uh, recurring dreams. And by the time I, I was 10, it intensified to the point that I ran away from my boarding school. And I ended up taking a two-day train journey and arrived in uh, Rajgir uh, in Bihar and uh, at the base of Vulture Peak and uh, recognized that that was one of the visions that I was having. Um, and uh, from then on, things just simply unfolded um, in, in um, an interesting manner. <laughs> I, I, I have a question in regard to that, uh, and, and I think most people in the West would not understand this, and that is to go from being a Hindu to being a Buddhist, is that a major transition? Is that something that sometimes his families would um, uh, 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 take concern over, or is it an easy transition? And I know in Hinduism, there's tremendous flexibility in terms of how one worships and could still be a Hindu, but going from Hindu to Buddhist, was that difficult? Uh, I mean, it really depends on, you know, what kind of family you are uh, part of. And, and my family was somewhat of a liberal Hindu. Um, and uh, the, the issue or the challenge wasn't as much as that I uh, had disposition towards Buddhism. I think the more the challenge was about taking up a monastic life, um, <laughs> uh, which, which went against not only uh, some of their own sort of uh, religious belief system, but also went against the social systems um, that uh, uh, they were part of and they had hoped that uh, I would remain part of. Yes, and I've written about a lot of the uh, Indian gurus who've come here, and uh, many of them talk about 
their families resisting the monastic urge that they had. They all want their grandchildren and you know. Yeah, especially if you're the only son in the family, that, yeah. that uh, raises the stakes. Yeah. Yes, and in Yogananda's case, I wrote a biography of him. His uh, he was the second oldest son, but then his older brother died, which made it that much more difficult for his his father to acquiesce to the monastic life. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole idea of uh, of uh, you know married life and the obligations thereof in terms of having kids and and so on uh, actually takes up an entire religious framework in India. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was more about, you know, uh, uh, questions that were primarily posed was, uh, you know, whether I was evading my uh, responsibilities as the only son, uh, escaping, uh, you know, parental obligations and things of that nature. And that was the journey that, you know, lasted for 18 years and still continues to this day. But now you ended up uh, studying at Harvard uh, and have, looks like, multiple advanced degrees. And you did that as a, a Buddhist monk. Is that correct? That, that's the order of things. What, what drew you to the secular education of uh, Ivy League? Well, um, uh, even in India, I was having a sort of, uh, you know, somewhat of an eclectic upbringing because, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, you cannot take full ordination vows unless your parents, if they're alive, have agreed to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was something that Buddha, the historical Buddha himself had instituted in his lifetime. Um, And so it didn't have to do with whether I was, you know, I was 10 years old, I couldn't make a decision. I... Uh, legally uh, uh, wasn't able to. And so the, the happy medium that, that uh, my parents and I sort of uh, agreed upon was that I'll continue to have secular studies uh, while uh, uh, you know, training as a monk and, and receiving monastic education. Because as far as my parents were concerned, you know, I was 10 years old and it was kind of an early teenage phase and that <laughs> it might last for six months or two years or three years, but then it'll be over. And so they emphasized this whole idea of secular education. And it was only after you know, several years of juggling two curriculums that I realized that, uh, you know, that there was some value uh, in it. Uh, there was some value in the, in the discipline of secular education. There was some value in the explorations um, uh, that there were. Uh, and of course, there were times, there were moments in my life when I was disillusioned uh, by one form of education or the other form of education. Uh, but I think what, what principally sort of this, uh, this uh, you know, coming to the U.S. allowed me was to really do a deep dive in disciplines and knowledge disciplines that perhaps otherwise wouldn't have been possible, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to sort of study philosophy and physics together uh, at a university level. Uh, those things were not sort of encouraged. It wasn't feasible because of the bureaucracy of, of education systems there. Uh, and I, I, I do believe that I really valued from that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Uh, you have one of the more remarkable backgrounds of uh, any one of the few thousand people I've interviewed. And uh, one of the things I found fascinating was that you wound up in a Jesuit college, Lemoyne College, uh, near Syracuse. Uh, and I, I'm 
the Jesuits are very scholarly uh, in terms of Catholicism. They're more open to new things, uh, new traditions, uh, new spiritualities than probably other areas of Catholicism. And I'm wondering how that went for you. What, what brought you to that college? Uh, were you seeking out the Jesuits? And if so, how did they receive you as a Buddhist? Oh, it was, it was one of the more uh, remarkable experiences. Uh, I mean, I was familiar with the uh, Catholic tradition quite a bit because my, my uh, school, schooling in India was through the Irish Christian brothers and the Catholic schools and so on. Uh, the Jesuits were wonderful. Uh, it allowed me to sort of maintain, how should I put it? Uh, uh, I could tolerate the culture shock. Uh, you see, uh, coming from sort of a monastic life into uh, an undergraduate institution. Uh, but to be able to maintain this interest in spiritual life and spiritual explorations, uh, that allowed me to sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of continue with the interest and the disposition, the spiritual disposition that I had. And I, I sort of was grateful for that experience. I, I met some tremendous individuals uh, in the Jesuit order, uh, including uh, Daniel Berrigan, uh, who was mm. sort of uh, this remarkable poet, mm -hmm. but one of the pillars of the peace movement mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the 60s in the US. And, and there so, was no pressure to, to convert you to Catholicism. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I mean, I've gone through that phase from very early on where, you know, uh, representatives of different religious tradition have often thought it would have been a good idea for me to join them from uh, the Hindus to the Hare Krishna to Ramakrishna mission to uh, Irish Christian brothers to Jesuits. Uh, and, and I think one of the one of the beauty of being a monk in the Tibetan tradition allowed me to do was that I could explore uh, all of them fully. Uh, while uh, being grounded um, uh, in the openness of, of the Buddhist tradition. Tell us about the uh, Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values. Why is it at MIT? How did it come about? You're the founder of it. And uh, it's now, what, 11, 12 years old. And uh, many of us are hearing about it for the first time. Tell us about the origins and the purpose. Certainly. Um, so I joined MIT uh, back in uh, uh, 2002, um, uh, full time, uh, while I was still sort of a graduate student. And, uh, and initially I joined as the Buddhist chaplain to the Institute. Uh, then I uh, sort of became a visiting scholar. Uh, and I had thought again that my, my stay there would be probably for a year or two. But uh, my interest grew in, in the kinds of work that I was doing there. And by 2006, 2007, I had been touring around North America at various institutes of higher education. And one of the things that sort of hit me pretty hard was that there was no systematic exploration of uh, education around uh, ethics uh, that, that most universities you know, sort of had ethics as a philosophy 101 kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, but nobody was sort of thinking deeply about, uh, you know, how humans learn certain, certain kinds of behavioral traits and so on. And by the time 2008, 2009 came around, I was already having these kinds of discussions with colleagues at MIT. And then the financial meltdown happened and it, it sort of uh, raised this issue uh, uh, around, you know, what are we actually doing uh, in education systems to 
foster a kind of critical thinking around ethical decision-making and so on. And, and that sort of prompted the founding of the Center for Ethics and Transformative Values at MIT. And I asked the uh, six Nobel Peace Laureates with whom I had some um, uh, interactions and others that I was, I was quite close to. And you know, then came the interesting question, which is that should I just leave it as Center for Ethics at MIT or should we give it a name? And as you know, generally in American institutions, oftentimes, you know, if somebody gives you, writes you a big check, then you put their name on it. And I was sort of reluctant with, the, with that idea that what if the donor is him or herself not very ethical to, <laughs> to have their name uh, on a center for ethics. So I sort of, you know, went back and forth with the, with the founding members. And uh, uh, in 2008, um, uh, one of the French surveys uh, did, uh, did a public survey and polling of the global influential leaders and the Dalai Lama topped the chart. And so Archbishop Tutu said, that's your, that's your answer. Um, um, and, and, uh, and so the center is not sort of Buddhist in its leaning. The, the entire enterprise is somewhat secular. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, it has grown tremendously. The hub is at MIT, but we operate programs in 10 countries from uh, business schools to uh, judicial systems to middle and high schools and so on. And we focus a lot on just doing programs. So, uh, I was wary of just, uh, you know, um, sort of just doing PR or having a flashy appearance of the center. Uh, uh, the whole idea was that let's, let's do the work. And as the work becomes more familiar and known, people will then know what the center is about. At, at the center, um, at MIT, uh, do you teach practice? Uh, do, do, you, do students do practically come and you teach them meditation? No, no, no. So it's not, uh, not that. No, uh, uh, it's, I mean, uh, you know, the role of teaching meditation or, or uh, Buddhist philosophy and things of that nature is something I do uh, uh, through a different platform, through a different outfit. Uh, the Center for Ethics, you know, uh, uh, the programs may be informed by contemplative traditions, um, uh, you know, uh, Christianity, Buddhist, uh, Buddhism, and so on. Uh, but uh, in its entirety, the program is meant to be designed in a way that anybody can do it. Anybody can take it, and it, it doesn't have any, um, you know, religious orientation. But and and what exactly uh, do the people who take the program? Um, what do they get out of it? What is the intention? And is there uh, uh, are there ethical principles that you convey or is it a way of coming to uh, training people to come to their own kind of ethical uh, standard? Uh, that's a great question. What, what, what we like to convey is a set of tools uh, around critical thinking, set of tools that makes individuals aware of their own biases and how they perceive things, how they make choices. Uh, how they make decisions. Uh, the center is not a prescriptive enterprise. Uh, and that was one of the things that I was very cautious of, being cognizant of uh, my own education uh, in the past. And, and I recognize that prescriptive methods around ethics has not served us well. Uh, you know, it either makes us very self-righteous or it makes us fanatic about certain kinds of things. Um, so what we really wanted to, to sort of suggest through the center is that Ethical learning is an important part of any kind of learning. 
Uh, but what it really ought to give you is a set of tools that, that really fosters a kind of critical thinking, perspective taking, and, and, and so on. And so we have programs for you know, all kinds of demographics from business leaders to government leaders. Uh, in Colombia, we have done program for Supreme Court judges. Uh, we do program for high school teachers and so on. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, you know, the, the key thing is for it not to become a prescriptive thing. You know, uh, I say it sort of sometimes lightly, but it's a bigger, bigger issue that it's, uh, it's easier to become self-righteous. It's much more difficult to be ethical. Right, right. I'm <laughs> Can curious, I follow up, Dennis? Uh, uh, you mentioned tools. I'm just curious what kind of tools they are or maybe an example. So, I mean, uh, you know, certain tools are sort of built into the processes uh, with which we design the interactive sessions and workshops around didactic thinking, uh, Socratic methods, uh, looking at sort of, you know, how individuals uh, get to values, for example, how do they um, instill certain kinds of values? Have they taught about it? Uh, are they values of the family, the nation, the tribe, the religion? Uh, why do they adhere to it? Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what are the values that prime them subconsciously in how they see the society? You know, one of the major issues that we are dealing with today is implicit bias. Uh, it's pervasive. You know, how do we tactfully uh, observe our implicit bias and, and try to sort of um, uh, regulate it or minimize it? Uh, there are other aspects to it around, you know, uh, what is popularly in the framework of social emotional learning. Uh, you know, uh, understanding how emotions uh, inform again our perceptions, choices, and decision making, and so on. So some of the, these things are processes. The others are also designing innovative tools like apps and games. Uh, so recognizing that you know uh, one of the worst things I find is lecturing on ethics to an eleven-year-old kid. Uh, but if we design games by which kids are playing with each other uh, and recognizing what kind of values goes into certain kind of decision-making? Does it build trust? Does it build cooperation or it builds competition? So those are the kinds of tools also that we are interested in designing and we have designed a few of them uh, over the years. Uh, I'm curious, uh, again, uh, reflecting on your time at MIT, uh, do you get a, a more interest from people? I, I'm curious in physical science, say physicists as opposed to life science people in terms of neurobiologists, do you, do you notice differences uh, based upon uh, what areas people are focusing on? And, and at a place like MIT, uh, anyone there is going to be uh, deeply, deeply focused and immersed, I would think, in their academic discipline and that how the, if that affects their approach and their response to ethics. Certainly. I, I think, you know, uh, the, the disciplines that individuals are steeped in, uh, uh, is, uh, is a primary driver sometimes in how they approach the subject of ethics. Uh, I think at MIT, the wonderful thing is that it's a very vibrant community and a lot of people are questioning, uh, uh, you know, how their discipline serves sort of the broader knowledge field. And, and more importantly, how do they come together to make the world a better place? Uh, you know, constantly dealing with problems that are relevant, either at micro or macro scale and so on. And so it's, it's really a, a, a delight to work with, uh, you know, uh, uh, interdisciplinary group of individuals uh, from neuroscience, from uh, robotics, uh, from business school, from oceans engineering. And it all sort of gives a wonderful uh, 
you know, set of new tools and perspectives in how we are approaching uh, uh, this world. Right. If I could follow up, Phil, uh, I, I'm real curious at artificial intelligence. Uh, the ethics of that is being discussed quite a bit. And I'm wondering if that's something that uh, uh, you, your, your institute has been dealing with, especially at MIT, where a lot of AI work is being done. Yes, yes. I'm actually quite steeped in, in fact, uh, earlier uh, uh, when we were having the schedule mishap, I was actually talking to colleagues at IBM on, on this thing. So I run something called Ethics and Governance of Artificial Intelligence um, uh, that started as a collaborative. Uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's an area that's uh, emerging uh, very quickly. It's going to have a tremendous impact, not only on industries, but also on education, on healthcare, but more importantly, it would shape what it means to be human right. uh, in, in, in five to 10 years from now. And, and so it begs, uh, you know, uh, very urgently sort of the questions around, uh, you know, ethics and design process, ethics and implementation, uh, what the governance uh, regulations or mechanisms will be around it. And, and that's a conversation I'm sort of actively having um, pretty much several conversations a day. I'm going to bring up a, a delicate subject, but um, you're heavily involved in the in promoting ethics and studying it you're also in a monastic uh, lineage um, in my the research I've had to do for my books and stuff I, I have become very conscious of uh, ethical problems that are have arisen in spiritual and religious circles not, and you're in Boston where, of course, you know, the, the uh, church's uh, struggles with that have been so prominent. <clears throat> All the various gurus who came here from India, many of them ran into uh, ethical problems, usually around sex. It happened in the Tibetan Buddhist context, as you know, and other Buddhist contexts in America, in the yoga world, uh, and, and various things. Have you given much thought to that? Do you have outreach to uh, spiritual communities? I think it's a question of, you know, uh, uh, is whether a spiritual community is uh, looking for those kinds of feedback or not. Uh, much of my work has been mostly just around um, education and technology and so on. But, uh, you know, I do run a spiritual community as well. Um, and, um, and act as a spiritual counselor and advisor uh, in my capacity as a Buddhist monk. And it is, it is something that is ongoing, um, you know, uh, in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, uh, were an interesting time period where there was a lot of mishmash in terms of what defined an ethical code of conduct. Um, uh, oftentimes there wasn't uh, a given set of clarity. And even today, when you ask individuals who were part of those groups or part of those memberships, you know, there are some who are very critical of it and there are others who are, uh, uh, who are very grateful for it. You know, meaning that again, there's no sort of clear boundaries. Um, you know, those are the things that we are beginning to witness more so in the last five years or so. Uh, because a lot you know, uh, a lot of drama has happened under the name of crazy wisdom, uh, in the name of, uh, you know, uh, teacher-student relationship and, and, and things of that nature. 
Um, and, you know, I think it is, it is um, you know, as highlighted traditionally uh, in Buddhism, that it is both the responsibility of the teacher and the congregation or the community that the teacher is part of to mutually reflect and examine. You know, one of mm-hmm. the things that, that we don't often recognize is that in, in, in traditional Buddhism, they used to say that, you know, even if it takes you 12 years to find a teacher, take that time because it's a very important relationship. But today, you know, people are impatient. You know, we either find a teacher because of their charisma. We find a teacher because we find their appearances attractive. We find a teacher simply because the teacher speaks English uh, as opposed to some of the other languages. Meaning that the, the, the shortcuts that we are taking in terms of relating to a spiritual teacher uh, can cause uh, quite a bit of damage and breaches. And, and, and so, you know, my sort of, you know, uh, two cents always is that there, there ought to be mutual examination. Uh, uh, and, and the teacher and student relationship is one of the sacred, one of the most profound relationships known to humankind. Uh, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, we must sort of uh, reflect deeply on it. May I interject? Um, I just looked this up because what you said reminded me of something I have quoted the Dalai Lama as saying on occasion, uh, and I hope this is accurate. I just looked it up quickly. Before taking someone as a teacher, be careful. Use your critical faculty and subject that teacher to scrutiny. Yes. Uh, that is quite correct. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said that many a times in many a public gatherings. Uh, but you have to also be cognizant of the fact that not every Buddhist teacher believes that. Not every Buddhist teacher agrees mm-hmm. with it. And we often run into these kinds of uh, conflicting patterns where, you know, the teacher calls for faith without examination. Uh, you know, and, and those are the those are the challenges that will continue to grow, um, um, uh, you know, with the amount of confusion there is, uh, meaning that, you know, we don't actually have very good templates for how to go about this kind of mutual examination, again, because we don't take the time uh, uh, to do so. Uh, one final question for me, uh, and that is, um, uh, how are we for time, Phil? We have a good five or six. Okay. And, and that is in your role as a chaplain at MIT for the students. I believe you were the first Buddhist chaplain there. Um, how did you, uh, how was that? Was it a one-on-one counseling with students? Did you ever perform any rituals? Uh, what was your role? No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a collection of roles um, uh, because, you know, um, uh, chaplaincy is very much like, uh, you know, ministerial mm-hmm. uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, reaching out to uh, the campus. And it's not just uh, for students, but it is also for uh, uh, larger MIT community, uh, you know, so teachers, staff, and so on. Uh, And as part of that role, we have regular meditation sessions, we have retreats, we have speaker series. There's a lot of counseling that happens. Uh, There's a lot of counseling that happens in times such as these, when the pandemic has uh, uh, challenged uh, a lot of certainty around student life and, uh, uh, how they approach uh, uh, subjects, relationships, um, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so it, it sort of encompasses all of those things. 
Well, were you getting a lot of non-Buddhist students coming to you? Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's it's one of those places, you know, universities are places where students are also exploring uh, uh, right. their spirituality and their religious uh, uh, dispositions. And so well, we do get a lot of individuals who are not, uh, um, you know, uh, traditionally Buddhists. And do you do a lot of um, uh, joint projects on campus with the other chaplains from other traditions? Yeah, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, one of the joys of uh, being in a campus like MIT is that, you know, you're working with a multi you're working in a multi-religious setting and environment. So it allows for, you know, uh, promoting certain kinds of conversations and so on. And then, you know, given my own sort of proclivities towards other religious traditions, um, I've had, uh, you know, uh, wonderful opportunity of hosting many of them. You know, uh, I had Father Thomas Keating at on MIT's campus uh, a number of times uh, for public conversations, Brother David Steindl Rost, uh, you know, uh, and even people who are not belonging to any of the religious traditions per se, uh, uh, because I think that's one of the obligations as well as to expose students mm-hmm. to such conversations and such dialogues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 one last question for me, and that is, I have a tremendous interest in the ethic associated with artificial intelligence. I think this is, as you mentioned, huge. Where can one go to get more information about that? Does your institute, uh, is there uh, materials either available online or otherwise where one could uh, uh, keep up to date with what's going on and what's being written and said in that area? Well, we we don't, we mostly design programs for study purposes for, for participants mm-hmm. who are participating in the program. Uh, much of the work that I do that is sort of in the public domain uh, generally comes in forms of public conversations uh, or it'll come in forms of papers that I might do in collaboration with somebody like IEEE, um, um, uh, the, the, pre, uh, the eminent engineering association uh, that uh, publishes white papers and, and things of that nature. Uh, it tends in uh, in your biography that uh, online it says that you were uh, involved with some uh, conflict resolution uh, activities in uh, both India and Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm curious about them. I spent a lot of time in India, and um, I'm wondering uh, if you could uh, tell us a little bit about those. I think it was, you know, it was sort of something that was driven by need or necessity, so to speak. Uh, one that, you know, you're, you're in a position as a religious leader or religious individual. And, you know, we do tend to identify quite a few conflicts, uh, even if they're ethnic or economical conflicts, uh, uh, we tend to categorize them as religious. Um, and so it becomes important for religious leaders to then start playing a role uh, in that. Uh, and whether these are conflicts that happen, you know, between, say, uh, Hindu, Muslim, Christian communities, or uh, where, uh, uh, or uh, Buddhist and um, uh, Hindu communities uh, in Sri Lanka, uh, or uh, conflict. Uh, right now, uh, I'm involved in some capacity in Colombia, mm. uh, uh, in the in the peace uh, uh, making processes. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's just a matter of sort of, you know, what kind of uh, tools one can bring in and recognizing that, that while religion is perceived as a diversive force and, and it has unfortunately historically acted as such, 
but there are certain tools that are present uh, in, in religious tradition that can help us sort of, um, you know, truly bring us together. What are the students um, in this difficult year that we've all just been through? How do the students reach out to you remotely? What, what is their biggest challenge? One of uh, our previous guests is a friend of mine who you probably know, Varun Soni, the, who's at USC. And yes. there, he was telling me there's a, a, a lot of you know, depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal tendencies uh, have been elevated. Is that the case? I, th I think that is the case uh, in all uh, American institutions of higher education, um, uh, you know, uh, and I think it has just uh, sort of, you know, sort of become exasperated uh, because of the constraints uh, posed by pandemic. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, part of the thing that, uh, uh, you know, uh, you only imagine what people did 100 years ago when there was no Zoom and there was no internet uh, to keep uh, sanity. Uh, while maintaining this uh, level mm -hmm. of isolation, uh, and and so those are the things that that uh, you know will will sort of continue to see and continue to deal with, and uh, even in months and years to come, you know, depression is not going anywhere, unless we begin to sort of tactfully uh, design some good responses for it. I, I would think living in a monastery, trained as a monk, the pandemic would be easier to to handle. Uh, uh, than, than it would be for somebody that was very active uh, with people in the world. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know, it, it depends on personality types, like, you know, mm -hmm. introverts handle the situation much better than extroverts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, being in a monastery, what, what people often forget is that you're all often in communities, right? Uh, uh, and, and sometimes mid-sized to large communities. So you're, you are interacting with people. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, I, I am thankful to my earlier training uh, uh, you know, that allows me to embrace solitude uh, uh, at a wonderful, and uh, in, in wonderful ways, uh, I think, you know, but it wasn't a traditional solitude, it wasn't a traditional retreat, because you're constantly making yourself available uh, over phone calls or Zoom calls for, <laughs> uh, you know, any number of needs right. uh, that, that people are uh, proposing. We have about one minute, and I have a very important question. I ask this of everybody I meet who came to America from India, uh, what was your first winter in the Northeast like? <laughs> I, think, I think the charm lasted for two days. <laughs> uh, that long, and, huh? And, yep, and, and then, then I was uh, <laughs> over it. But, uh, you know, my friends used to joke because uh, most of my uh, friends who were monks, when they came to the US, they would choose to stay in the West Coast or they would go to the Southern part of the US. Uh, I, on the other hand, have, uh, you know, uh, maintained the physical presence uh, in the East Coast. Um, and so it's an interesting training. Yeah. I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've, I've heard some great stories. Thank you so much for Thank being you. with us. It's been a joy and um, wish we had more time. Perhaps you'll come back another time and we'll explore some things more deeply. Thank you. It was delightful. Have a lovely day. And keep up the good work. We'll uh, look forward to hearing more about your work at MIT. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.